right, so we're back to Cracks in Postmodernity with John Milbank, who I'm very excited to have on today. So John, tell us a little bit about your background, your scholarly work, and then about the Radical Orthodoxy Project. Well, I had um, quite a mixed kind of academic formation. I started off by being a historian, which has uh, probably continued to have an influence on me. And then I studied theology and then I studied philosophy and went back to theology. And then my, my first post was to do with uh, Christian social thought. Um, and that steered me in a particular direction that's been one of the dominant themes for me. Um, radical orthodoxy really emerged amongst some academics and students in Cambridge University um, in the 1990s. And uh, I, I suppose it developed from a feeling that um, the agenda for, for theology was always set from outside theology. Um, uh, 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 with the assumption that theology in various ways had to fit into frameworks created elsewhere, with the feeling that even apparently trends that would resist that, like party and neo-orthodoxy, um, in reality weren't contesting uh, a philosophical framework and, and that they still had a a kind of fideistic response to a modern um, philosophical framework. Um, so um, we, we were in a way contesting boundaries and, and suggesting that um, a, a, a lot of the conclusions of other disciplines are not theologically innocent, which I'd already uh, been trying to do in my book that I finished at Lancaster, um, Theology and Social Theory. Um, and so that you are, we're confronted often with quasi-theologies or with outright anti-theologies, even when secular thought appears to be um, in, in some sense uh, neutral. Uh, this definitely doesn't mean that we're trying to, as it were, deduce everything from theology. That would be uh, an absurd conclusion because theology itself is a very analogical, fragmentary, negative discourse that's uh, always um, built up from the extension of, of other discourses. Um, but I suppose we're trying, we were looking for a space where those discourses have a certain kind of open-endedness, contesting the idea that they are necessarily finite or that uh, the finite defines a critical space or you can readily define the bounds of uh, licit over against illicit discourse. And that made us very naturally sympathetic to um, theologians of the Nouvelle Theology who had who contested the idea that there is a sharp boundary uh, between the natural and the supernatural or between grace and reason. And then I suppose, um, you know, two other things to mention would be, first of all, that we were operating against um, a background of the influence of post-structuralism and post-modernism and uh, 
to some extent a kind of Wittgensteinian skepticism, if you're talking more analytic terms, um, suggesting that everything is fluid or everything is only linguistic. Um, uh, and and uh, the danger that we're heading towards completely skeptical or nihilistic conclusions. And one response to that is to, you know, return to some kind of foundationalism in philosophy and to return to some kind of humanism in terms of values. Whereas we were suggesting that a different response would be to recover the sense of the strong link of theology to a broadly neoplatonic tradition that um, sees everything in terms of participation. And that by doing that, one can rethink the fragmentary and temporal and linguistic character of, of everything um, more as um, pointing towards the infinite in a, in a stuttering kind of way, um, sort of escaping skepticism without returning to some kind of um, imminent foundationalism. And I think perhaps it's fair to say that since that time, you know, secular thought where it, it hasn't gone in a completely nihilistic or skeptical direction, um, we can talk about this a bit later, has returned to one form or, or another of, of speculation. And you could say in a sense that radical orthodoxy was one of the first movements to do that, to um, try to return to a metaphysics in a rather, you know, metaphysical ki kind of sense. So, um, you know, not to retreat simply to philosophy of language or simply phenomenology, the philosophy of appearances. I, th I think one should rather say that uh, everything is about appearances and everything is about articulation, but neither are complete in themselves. And just for that reason, there is a speculative dimension to, to thoughts. If it's going to be realist, you know, whether about things in this world or, or about God, but that doesn't preclude um, a certain mystical idea that we are somehow, through our speculation, um, seeing beyond what we can normally see. I think this is one reason why Nicholas of Cusera has been so important within radical orthodoxy, mm -hmm. his link between the mystical on the one hand and, and the conjectural um, on, on, on the other hand. And then I, I think the second thing to say is, and this has probably become more important as time has go, gone on, that, that we've um, wanted to, to see radical orthodoxy, not simply as meaning that orthodoxy is actually the most radical and critical thing you can imagine, which we certainly do think, but that sometimes orthodoxy itself feeds radicalizing. In other words, that, those thinkers who've most pressed um, the paradoxes of Christian uh, theology, and that would include the paradox, the natural desire for the supernatural. But if you like all the paradoxes to do with the relationship between uh, the creator and, and the creation, and the paradoxical implications of Trinitarian and Christological thought. So all those thinkers who've sort of pushed that issue and, and those things
thinkers, I would say, who have been concerned to say that the Christian recognition of finitude and plurality is nonetheless not a sort of qualification of mon monotheism or even a kind of radical monism in the sense that everything participates in the one, comes from the one and mm -hmm. returns to the one. Um, but I, I do feel that, that, that there's a sort of resonance between radical orthodoxy and the way that things are going in some other traditions. For example, I feel that the so-called uh, theological term in French phenomenology is now shifting into more acceptance of the metaphysical, that the, you know, the closure against the metaphysical is being questioned by the next generation. Yeah. And, 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 and we're getting to a much more ecumenical situation where we, we sort of acknowledge the contribution of analytic focus on language and the contribution of phenomenology on intuition and what appears, but, but you insist that, that the interplay of those requires the third, if you like, of the speculative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I yeah, know, and I see a lot of my own experience reflected in that trajectory yeah. because, you know, as I was saying, when I was an undergrad, you know, I was at a Catholic university, I was studying theology, but there's a heavy emphasis on post-structural thought to the point that, you know, like you were saying, they're trying to fit these th theological categories into the post-structural categories using it on, you know, on its terms, not on the theology's terms, not looking at these metaphysical concepts on their own terms. And I didn't really have any tools to make sense of that. Like I, it was yeah, just, yeah. this was all I was being given. And it wasn't until, you know, I, I did a master's at another university in theology. And that's when I was first exposed to people like McIntyre, like Charles Taylor. Yes. And I yes. saw that there are people who are, looking at secularism and asking well what is this and what are the categories that this has spawned because yeah. it's not neutral as much as it claims to be it's not um it's not absolute um where did these categories these ideas come from and it was i think it was a conference i went to where william t Kavanaugh spoke um and i i decided to pick up a copy of torture in the eucharist and that's where i think he mentions you theology and social theory and I think what really resonated there is that, you know, you're taking a lot of these post-structuralist thinkers like Foucault, Derrida, and you're taking, I guess, this, um, this hermeneutic of doubt, of skepticism, and flipping it on its head, saying, well, you know, well, where does this, where do these categories you're using even come from? Like, where, you know, it's like you're taking the skeptical attitude that they have and then using yes. it to, um, to critique what they're saying, because again, it's like, they don't have any claim to neutrality, nor does theology, of course. But if we're going to create, you know, if we're going to treat post-structuralism as if it can serve as the basis, the foundation of a university education, which I, I saw in my experience that was happening, you know, we have to have real, um, we have to have reasons to do so. And if it's not neutral, yeah. if there aren't adequate reasons, then why is this becoming the norm you know mm -hmm. um and i know you're saying now i think a lot of younger people especially my generation are skeptical about that because there's we recognize there's a need for the metaphysical without that 
like <laughs> our culture is impoverished we fall into despair um, yes you know so I, I hope i hope we can be optimistic and say that there's a shift but you know i definitely see the consequences there are definitely repercussions of using only this skeptical kind of narrative and not asking well what is real what is true you know yes i mean i think you know it's possible to see a certain debt to the post-structuralist moment insofar as it was um deconstructing foundationalism it was um getting rid of the the dominance of epistemology and the model of of representation and the idea that we can generate things simply out of a kind of a priori given humanism so that i think it did an important negative work but then the 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 next stage was to see that it's still putting up a new kind of um transcendentalist framework that's supposed to be fundamental you know the idea that we are totally trapped within language and uh, semiotics is always postponement and, and 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 so on and i think you know that um since then um there's been a, a deeper and further questioning of, of humanism in in secular thought uh you know a, a realization that uh, it's rather strange to say that we're trapped within various forms of cultural bounds as if we weren't all also natural um, creatures. And so, you know, as you'll know, there's this sort of reaction towards a kind of speculative realism that involves an even further questioning of, of the, you know, the normativity of Kant, the idea that we can only, as it were, know our own thoughts in the end. And I think this is one of the reasons for the turn against phenomenology or the idea that we can only know the finite, you know, a sense that maybe Kant isn't really fully in keeping with either natural science or the conclusions of, of mathematics. Um, uh, it, you know, besides the earlier idea that he's not really taking account of language, which is already mixed up intuition with with intellection and he's, he's not really taking account of the body which means that you know before we're we're looking at the world trying to know it we're already part of the world and our knowledge of the world is only part of our interaction with the world and yet the irony is that even in secular terms Kant may not be ultimately normative you know that there can be other so for theologies by playing this try to fit in game, it then gets wrong footed when the name of the secular game changes, you know, yeah. and you now have to confront a much more radical um, speculative naturalism. Uh, and, and uh, you know, in a way, then you can play a straight, you can make it much more of a straight metaphysical fight nowadays. And I think radical orthodoxy hasn't been alone, but I think it's been one of the movements that's prepared us much more um, for that kind of moment, if, if you like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I want to go a little bit more into now the, the cultural repercussions of, you know, uh, this kind of battle, as you're saying, because I think yeah. it was, there was an article you wrote in The Guardian, I believe, about transgenderism and the kind of class conflict implicated in it. Mm -hmm. 
And it was helpful for me because I think that was the first time I saw articulated that um, these ideas that are born out of post-structural thought, which are very much removed from a, a phenomenological awareness of the body, of human experience, yeah, yeah. they're very much uh, abstracted from reality, um, serve to benefit those who are, um, I mean, for lack of a better term, elites, people who are college educated, who have, you know, enough financial resources, um, there isn't as much at stake for them. Whereas for working class, ethnic people, people of color, um, this kind of worldview that's uprooted from the real, from the body, um, from, na from nature, from natural law, like yeah, there yeah. are consequences when you buy into these ideas, when you, you know, relativism has a cost, but it's, it's a more prominent cost for those who are not as, yeah. as privileged, we can say. You know, there's a, you know, there are a huge number of things you might say here. And, you know, what's been happening recently in Canada with the truckers, it's almost as if you've got the physicals versus um, the virtuals, you know, mm -hmm. and I think not to understand why the physicals are angry um, it, it is, is to make a very big mistake. There's, but I think you're putting your finger on it, you know, the, the, the sense that uh, there, are, there are people for whom, uh, you know, concrete and traditional things are, are their security um, and what, what gives meaning to their lives. So that, you know, it, it's increasingly obvious with this, you know, drift of the working class towards the political right, which may not be uh, a good thing at all. But, but nonetheless, you know, the liberal left does, it does pose very important questions. You know, the sort of the patronizing attitude that kind of working class people, you know, only care about the economic situation, for example, they do care. About, about the economic situation. Um, but the, you know, the, the idea precisely because um, you may not have a, an enormous amount of e economic stuff, I mean, you're not necessarily poor and, and precisely because you're not naturally individualistic, you know, what gives meaning to your life mm -hmm. um, is, is much more, um, it, 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 you know, something symbolic, if you like that, you know, your, your cultural identity, your place, um, your country, a certain ritual pattern of doing things, you know, it, it's profoundly ironic, especially in Britain, perhaps, that where working class may not be very religiously observant, and yet, in a weird kind of way, they have a stronger sense of the religious pattern that, than a lot of the religious, for whom religion has become... Uh, something far too kind of abstract and yeah. moralistic in a, in a in a in a narrow kind of way and you know again i think you know the the traditional left is you know it's absolutely right to say yeah i mean um you know working classes people suffer for reasons of economic depredation because capitalism is unfair i agree with all that but they've sort of underrated the degree to which um 
you know, family structures have enabled the working classes to survive. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that strong family, and we one sees this so clearly with people like Asians, that they enable them to cooperate from families. You build cooperative communities. Um, you're able to take more control over your your own destiny. You know, and and some ethnic groups less able to do that. It, it often is because of family breakdown or breakdown of of religious um, traditions. You know, for both internal and external reasons. And you know. None of these things have, have the left taken seriously. And the, there's a sense in which the over-alliance of socialism with materialism mm -hmm. um, leads to a weird kind of patronizing that, that, that you know, uh, again, you know, um, uh, the, the, the base level is the real level, if, if, if you like. Yeah. It's, it is a leveling down rather than than a leveling up and a lot of working class actually it turns out aspire to a leveling up and and, and and you know unless you you miss that the risks that you're going to um let new kinds of fascism emerge you know well it's already absolutely palpable that, that i think that you know that that is the risk the working class sensibility that really values, as you said, like the body, the immediate, the real, um, basic family relations, community, local community kind of relations yeah. um, that is being overlooked. That's not really factored into the calculations of corporate power, state power. Um, but I think for me, what's really striking, and again, back to the, the article that you wrote, their vision of freedom of, you know, of liberation is totally connected to the power of technology, but also bureaucracy. So in order to be your authentic self, there needs to be a technological intervention. You need to patronize corporate power. Um, it's just thinking of like the, the trans phenomenon, like to be yourself, you have to yeah, pay yeah. to get well, these treatments uh, using technology. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the, 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 the trans debate is another example of the way in which, you know, theology can be, be wrong-footed, because mm -hmm. it now turns out, you know, there is no secular disagreement, sorry, agreement about this issue. On, on the contrary, it's within secular feminism itself that you're getting a backlash against that. And yeah. with the thought of people like Mary Harrington uh, and, and so on, this is leading to a quite radical thinking uh, about second wave feminism and how far it was even ever feminist, you know, because it was too much about self-construction and ignoring um, the, the biological dimension and, and the question of the flourishing of, of women um, as very specifically women and as, as different bodily, that involving a different phenomenology in the way that somebody like uh, Irigray uh, argued. I mean, French feminism has always been more aware of this, this kind of thing, but the, you know, the trajectory of a lot of Anglo-Saxon feminism it, it, towards self-construction means you kind of leave the question of being a woman behind altogether. You, it even gets kind of derogated, you know, and then it leads to this encouragement of the post-human. And I suppose at this 
point I get slightly confused because I can see how there is uh, a continuity from the sort of open-ended nihilism of post-structuralism towards um, the post-human obsession. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I think other aspects of, um, you know, current wokeness and so on, uh, I can't imagine people like Derrida and Deleuze and Foucault uh, liking it at all because no. it, it's far too much like about human rights and and yeah. an insistence that there are you know absolute identities that you can assert and the idea that you sort of you know about yourself and nobody else does you know this seems to be not at all in keeping with the the critical attitude of post post modernism so that you know one aspect of the current mood is is more like a hyper modern liberalism really mm -hmm. it's sort of liberalism on speed or something uh, and i think you put your finger on it when you say that there's a kind of alliance between a new sort of unquestioning scientism which again is not very like the post-structuralist but a sort of naturalist scientism on the one hand and on the other saying, well, a, a very radical subjectivity that is is simply about self-assertion and, um, you know, turning yourself into something else. Okay. With, with the complication that it always seems to be also about identifying with a certain group, you know, which are problematically and incoherently supposed to be at once sort of naturally absolute and yet also totally invented you know yeah. in, in a way that's completely confusing and and at that point politics overtakes all philosophy it, it seems to be yeah. all um, serious I... reflection and the fact that universities don't say this and go into this is an absolute betrayal of what they're supposed to be uh, about you know yeah, no. Um, and it makes me think of, uh, you're familiar with Augusto del, no del Noche's work, the Italian political philosopher. Del Noche, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Right from my thesis on Vico onwards, I've been aware of yeah. Del Noche and uh, a, a very interesting guy who sort of pleads for Southern Latin thoughts as, yes. as having its own integrity and importance. Yeah. Yeah, because he he says in one of the essays that all of these ideologies that, you know, really uh, gave way to the revolution, the culture, cultural revolutions of the 60s, had this anti-bourgeois, anti-establishment kind of bent. But inevitably, because they never really took into account any metaphysical categories, never really allowed for um space for the transcendent inevitably they became bourgeois again so this is what you're saying that yeah. i'm sure foucault would not be pleased with the current um transgender narrative that we're hearing today but because he left no space for the metaphysical this is inevitably what happens um as much as he may not he may not agree with uh, the result it's this is you can't avoid this if you're not going to be rooted in something that's eternal that transcends earthly power, state power, et cetera, you know? Yeah. No, yeah. I, uh, uh, I mean, I, I, yeah, I completely agree with you about that very much so. Yeah.
But, you know, I, I want to talk more about, I guess, the the cultural, but also the psychological consequences of, you know, this being the kind of prominent narrative being fed to students in universities. Because for me, you know, I think for people coming from, you know, comfortable middle class suburban kind of bourgeois settings, going to university, um, being taught to look at reality this way, um, for me, at least speaking from my personal experience, like it kind of strips you of any possibility of hope or meaning because you're taught that it's just this battle between um, different earthly powers. There's nothing that really promises a real lasting meaning in life, um, you know, other than trying to create a more just social order, which again, is just comes down to brute power. But also, um, sorry, you're breaking up. Okay, let me let me make sure it's connected. Okay. Can you hear me now? Is it clear? Yes, that's better. Okay. All right, no. So I was I was saying, um, no. I, I want to look at the cultural and also the psychological consequences of you know post structuralism being the kind of main foundation of university education, at least in the humanities. Because for me, I, I found that for myself, but also others who came from a very comfortable, you know, suburban, bourgeois, middle-class background, um, you're going into college with these very, I guess, just very sheltered from the realities that other people have to face. Like you're give, already given this narrative that like reality is benevolent, that, you know, as long as you're a good person, you be yourself, everything will work out fine. And then once you get the post-structuralist kind of narrative, then it's like, you know, there's this urge to be part of, um, you know, being on the right side of whatever social cause, like you want to assure that, you know, I don't know, it comes down to this power dynamic that as long as those who are good, those who are for the right cause are in power, but also that, you know, you're yourself, you, you're true to your, you know, this kind of authenticity narrative, everything will be fine. But then after that, it's like, okay, first of all, when am I going to be truly myself? Like, when do I achieve this ideal? It's super mm -hmm. abstract, but it's totally disconnected from culture, tradition, family relations, anything larger than myself. And then when it comes to the social reality, it's like, when do we achieve uh, true equality, true liberation? Like there's no real um, criterion for, make, for making this kind of determination. So what you end up with is this sense of atomization. And you, you know, one way of putting it is, is to say that if, if the people at the top of the meritocratic hierarchy um, don't believe in any kind of metaphysical hierarchy or hierarchy of values, then they seem to be adopting a discourse that simply justifies th their own power and, and even tends to reduce learning to itself to you know the struggle struggle for power mm -hmm. and and you know an awful lot of people by now have pointed out um how dubious uh, you know, the rule of the marriage crats actually is that they've become a self-reproducing class, that the education divide is now one of the biggest uh, vote indicators. And we've got this 
extraordinary situation, unprecedented in history, where the learned class seems to have moved towards the left, mm -hmm. even yeah. though, you know, um, their cousins or um, some of the people who leave a university eventually, you know, move on to the neoliberal right in reality. But, but you've got this devil's alliance really between a cultural left uh, and an, e uh, and an economic right in liberalism, but it's really, in the end, these are, you know, the same, the same group of people. Um, and, and so we now get this phenomenon of, of woke capitalism that, that surely um, encapsulates uh, the, the, this, this phenomenon. And, and, and so, you know, the obsession of the left with, you know, completely middle-class issues uh, of identity and self-realization um, and, and, you know, the collapse of any really strong concern with the critique of capitalism or any strong discourse of uh, solidarity you know, uh, amongst everybody, what what it what is bringing us together uh, in terms of the the the, the common good. But what you know, I, I mean, one of the ironies of all this is that you know, humanities have now practically collapsed. You know, whether whether not linked in any way to uh, religious traditions and upheld by them, they're vanishing because, you know, if all there is to say is an insistence on me and my rights, there's really not a lot of point in, in studying a lot of difficult books. Uh, and, you know, you might as well pursue the topics that are more linked to wealth and success, the, the STEM subjects that are going to lead you in, in that direction. So once more, we, we've got a drift towards scientism and positivism, and yet the reverse face of that is this very extreme um, subjectivism uh, and tending clearly in a, in a transhumanist direction, you know, which is only going to mean that in reality, a few human beings are controlling everybody else. But, you know, another, the, there's also a tragedy involved here that, you know, the elite is getting smaller and smaller. That, yeah. you know, even yeah. most of the people who go to university are going to be proletarianized. They're already being proletarianized. You know, their, their jobs are being routinized. Uh, because of digitalization, um, that they're increasingly not going to earn uh, an awful lot. And, you know, this is why people like Joel Kotkin rightly talk about an apparently neo-feudal situation um, emerging, you know, where you've got the, the super rich and, and their hangers-on and, and, and everybody else. And, uh, um, you know, there, there are complicated social divisions that I don't, you know, as yet fully understand. I think that in Britain, we tend to find there's an older working class that have still got houses and uh, very traditional and not very well off, perhaps. But then they've got children who are living a very precarious existence in, in London, but they're, they're nearer the centre of things. And perhaps for that reason, they're attracted towards these 
woke issues that give them some sort of sense of self-respect and who they are, you know, it's a bit like tattooing. It's the kind of political cultural equivalent of that. Yeah. Um, mm. and, um, and, and, you know, one of the, we need a kind of politics that can somehow find a way of bringing together the, you know, the perilous situation of those people. And, uh, um, you know, and, and also a lot of, uh, immigrant communities in metropolitan areas who are, who are basically exploited, um, but they're sort of patronized by a middle class who's apparently concerned with race issues and yeah. not at all with, you know, the poor white issues at, at the margin, margins. We, you know, we need to find a way of cutting through um, the new way in which um our official capitalist liberal politics is dividing people from each other and i think none of the current discourses know how to do that or practice it yeah and i, I my fear though is that in the midst of all this kind of uh chaos and confusion there's such great psychological consequences for the young people who buy into these kinds of ideas because again it's like my fear is the the kind of radical atomization whether it's from other being disconnected from other people but also from ideas from values that really give life meaning um and i don't know i see it in things like the performative activism like you said it's it's like a tattoo it's a way to project your insecurity your lack of existential certainty in life onto these issues outside of yourself so that you can be distracted from the fact that you don't know where your value comes from or what gives your life meaning um and you see it in the victimization narratives they're like sure i mean there are plenty of real injustices real oppression that people suffer but when we kind of turn to these victim narratives of like you know let's point the finger at someone else rather than addressing yeah, oh, it in a, exactly. in a realistic way you know it's it it's not liberating it's it can't be a good situation where the the alternatives are you know you fail and you cast yourself as a victim yeah. um or you simply pursue an incredibly narcissistic kind of success and all the role models that young people are presented with, you know, suggest the latter. Um, and, and uh, you know, there's, there's no middle path offered there of, of you know, a decent uh, self-fulfillment in solidarity with, with, with other people. And, uh, you know, the only ideal ever seems to be um, social mobility and, and of course that has collapsed as well you know so the 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 you know now the only options are superstardom or or victimage but you know social mobility doesn't seem enough either you know what what you know we need people at every level of society and you know everybody's roles have to be made uh, as fulfilling as possible and 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 and, uh, and and there must be dignity in all necessary human roles otherwise nobody should be performing them otherwise it's it's a kind of slavery you know i mean we go on and on and on about slavery in the past and we don't recognize 
uh, not just the, the real slavery, but the quasi-slavery that, that exists in, in the present. You know, at least Marx was aware of that, you know. Um, but, but the risk is we're all becoming enslaved now, I think, in different ways. And, and psychological damage, yes. I mean, there is a so-called epidemic of mental illness, um, but uh, uh, increasingly, at least in Britain, psychiatry is very uncertain about the category of mental illness. Uh, I mean, isn't it much more that people are in radical distress and that their so-called illnesses are completely coherent reactions to the intolerable, you know, of, of people who are who are very sensitive? Yeah, no, and I, I feel like even these ploys for, you know, quote unquote, mental health awareness, like, of course, you know, there are real mental illnesses that need to be taken seriously, but... I feel like it's becoming this um, this mask for the fact that people are, um, you know, reasonably disillusioned with the kind of cultural norms today. Don't really find space to breathe, to be human, and you know, and then we chalk it up to mental health issues when really it's people are very sane. It's just that the culture, you know. Um, so then, what is the solution? Is it? <laughs> Uh, is it again it's the solution is you have to pay an expert someone who's you know worked their way up in the meritocratic uh and the um, you know one of these people who are high up in amongst the elites and you have to pay to cure whatever your problem is it's uh, it's it's very deceptive that the this narrative of like you know uplifting the oppressed of liberation always has to include um, something that gives corporate power more profit or that patronizes yeah. the state the bureaucracy, and I think it goes back to what you're saying that there's this disconnect between um, I don't know it's just this understanding of solidarity as something that takes into account real social needs Absolutely. but also the I human was, element of relation I, community. You know, I think I, I, I mean I think it's interesting you know that psychiatrists themselves are becoming in a way skeptical about their own profession because I think on the one hand these issues are really social and relational they can't be solved on the couch and on the other hand, to the degree to which they are genuinely psychological and, and not just to do with the brain, then what does that mean if you don't believe in the soul? You know, you, you know, you, if, if you don't invoke um, our spiritual nature and the transcendence, if you don't invoke real good and evil, it, it, you know, a, a therapeutic doctrine becomes sinister at, at that point. You know, it becomes a kind of suppression, not just of the social dimension, but also of the, the ethical dimension and the, and the spiritual dimension. Of course, I mean, there are psychiatrists who recognize all these things, you know, don't get me wrong, but, but I think there's a danger of those suppressions. Yeah, so in that case, do you see, do you have hope for some kind of coalition between people on the left and right who are against the kind of neoliberal establishment to create some kind of path that it re involves real solidarity, real, um, I don't know, something that's, uh, yeah, like, can there be that kind of unity, that shared project? Well, uh, you know, for a long time in, in Britain, I think um, people emerging from radical orthodoxy, along with other people, have tried to encourage 
just that kind of conversation, mm -hmm. you know, between conservatives who are genuine conservatives and, and believe in tradition and don't want everything undermined by, by money. And then uh, on the other hand, people on, on the left who really believe in solidarity and the common good and, and, an, and an ethical dimension, perhaps backed by religion and don't just believe in self-formation or a discourse of liberation and emancipation. In other words, that somehow when you've got rid of um, all the oppressive things, everything is fine. <laughs> um, instead of the idea that maybe, um, you know, we have to work at molding, shaping, constructing uh, uh, a good human life, which after all is a much more labor rooted idea if you like and the, there is a sense in which you know the name of the british labor party distinguishes it from these um discourses that are only about emancipation and you know a very long tradition of cooperation of self-formation um uh you know uh, trying to pursue a noble life in, in industrial communities and a, a dignified life of artisanry uh, and, and, and so on, you know, and a, a kind of despising, if you like, of just sheer individualism on one hand or sheer collectivism on the, on the one hand. You see this in the working class masterpiece novel, um, Robert Trussell's The Ragged trousered philanthropists which is uh, incredibly expressive of, of this attitude you know the sort of dignity and creativity of, of labor as being um what what really matters and and i think um we need to recover that and i i, I mean i've just been writing about this and i think it's interesting that you see both figures on the left like michael leand and adrian paps but also um, figures on, on the right, um, like, uh, name is escaping me, um, but uh, who are sort of rethinking the whole business of corporatism. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think corporatism is increasing, becoming the key word that, you know, the idea that this is only associated with fascism or, only associated with an illegitimate power of business is, is I think, wrong. Um, and that uh, in many ways, the relatively good things of, about the post-war settlement in Britain and in America and on the continent were to do with some kind of alliance between government, business and unions um, that was sort of genuinely allowing business and unions some influence but as a trade-off for an insistence that they they have to contribute to the common good in some way and i think what you could say now is that we have a very very evil form of corporatism in, in the world in other words you know the the big um digital companies control everything um the, there's, a, there's a hybridity between them and and and, and super states and I think that the only way to probably break that power is to have um, a good form of corporatism. It's, it's no good pretending that, uh, you know, 
economic enterprises don't shape our social and political reality. And, you know, the fiction that they're somehow politically neutral is very dangerous because in reality, then they seize illegitimate political power. And we need some much more a way of recognizing that political power is formed um, as a community of communities, as not just regions and localities coming together, but also, um, you know, working groups and various institutions of all kinds, including educational institutions. And in, instead of this market model of how everything integrates, you know, by the hidden hand, we, we need a much more gift exchange model that, that everything, we are all ultimately interchanging um, gifts with each other. And everybody, um, oh, Gladden Papam was the name I was trying to think of. He's written a very fine article about this. I, I mean, you know, people involved in the same kind of enterprise, beyond the you know the element of legitimate cooperation they need to be grouped in some kind of professional association that's also to do with with formation um so that they have some sense of the honor of what they're doing and that profits are ultimately subordinate to social purpose and i don't think any of this is utopian. I think it's much more that we need to redefine what gets you respect in, in society. You know, I think people pursue respect and recognition. They don't, uh, first of all, they're not primarily pursuing money and power. Most of all, people want to be in some sense admired or honoured. And we, we need to play up the latter um, far more. So we need to build up both socially and legally um, the, the structures that, that give us a different um, kind of success. You know, we need to call the powerful to account. That's the democratic element. But we, the other element is we're not going to we're not going to destroy um, you know, the relative influence of more powerful people or elites. We need to reshape what that means, I think. And that's another way of saying that we need a sort of left-right harmony. You know, we need more democratic participation, but we also need a sort of nobler sense uh, of what it means to have power and influence, if you like. That's the more aristocratic element. And yeah, I, that's the kind of certainly the kind of hybrid kind of hybridity that i'm talking about it's, <laughs> it's a kind of solidarism although you know if you hear this on the left and you get alarmed i, I think the upshot would be way way to the left of anything yeah. that we, we've got now you know yeah no because what one of the things that concerns me i see this in the us i don't know how much in the uk but what concerns me is that people have very limited categories with which they think about these social issues like i see so many people who really just think it comes down to democrat versus republicans and the narratives that they put out there and it's like when you talk about solidarity common good um, when we talk about you know state yeah. power corporate power this isn't on people's radars they really think at least in the circles I operate in, like yeah, well, people I, really think it's this simple dichotomy, I, this binary. I, I think, I think that, that? that you know, I think 
what we're ignoring here is, you know, the whole sociological tradition, the Catholic social teaching tradition, even elements um, within Hegel, you know, that because all our politics in a way assumes that we are isolated individuals and the state is over against us, it treats us as isolated individuals with rights. And then if we're not being mediated by the state, we're being mediated by, by the market. And then, the, you know, the alternative way to look at that is to say, well, that's never true. It's always a lie. Um, we're always already born into families, communities, business enterprises, um, you know, educational institutions. And, and really the political formation is, is, if you like, a body of bodies. And uh, in, in, in something I've just written, I, what, what I've said is that um, although that was initially a perception of the right against the French Revolution and people like Joseph de Maistre, it's, it's very significant that Comte in, you know, August Comte in founding sociology, he sort of accepts that perception, but he says, oh no, in, in, in the modern positivist order, it's only gonna be science that will kind of integrate all these things. Science will mm. be um, the, new, the new priesthood. But there's a, there's a sense to which Comte is absolutely right um, both to see that we're always really in a corporate order, not in this kind of liberal order, and to see the necessary role of, um, if you like, a spiritual class, what Coleridge calls a clerisy with, within that order. That, mm -hmm. that if, if you don't recognize the reality of, of that, what you get instead is the manipulators. You get, you know, the quasi-clerisy. Um, and, and, you know, that you get the dominance of media propaganda, yeah. uh, you know, and of course, in the last 20 years, that has been sort of undermined and yet confirmed by the total anarchy of, of, of the media. But, it, you know, it's no, no good complaining about misinformation and a crisis of truth. If real, in reality, you, you'd abandoned um, that search for for a deep truth and what yeah. really yeah. really binds us together which you know in the case of britain in the beginning of the bbc you know which was pretty well founded by a scots presbyterian that that would you know the reason why to this day the bbc has some sort of reputation is precisely to do with that kind of thing that it thought of itself as a corporation with kind of spiritual responsibilities you know and mm -hmm. uh, I mean that that has largely collapsed, but um... yeah, because when I look at where people get this idea that it's this you know very narrow dichotomy between two opposing sides, almost to the point that it's this Manichaean battle. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, it's I, the media. I, 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 don't, I don't think it. I don't think it's like that, and I think that the sort of liberal versus post-liberal front uh, has opened up, and yeah. uh, with, as it were, at a further extreme you know national populism and so on and you know i've i've very much tried to hold the line against going national populist because i think i think it's it's always a risk with some post-liberals but yeah maybe the terrible things that are happening now are a moment you know where victor Orban has realized maybe he isn't quite on the side of uh vladimir putin is 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 maybe a not kind of insignificant moment 
that. But, you know, all the weaknesses that have risen in in the West and that Putin and China have perceived are not, you know, they're not suddenly um, going to go away, I, I think. And I totally agree. I think left right thinking needs to be transcended and it's significant that um uh, Mikhea, uh, uh a french philosopher ha- has done very interesting work suggesting that kind of up to the 20th century even socialism was not necessarily a left-wing doctrine it was mm-hmm. that you know that the on you know being a reactionary defined the right you know you long for the ancien regime um, or, or for a relatively conservative version of liberal democracy. And, you know, what defines the left is liberalism and republicanism. But, mm-hmm. you know, the socialist focus on, um, well, precisely on, on the social order uh, and on the corporate order, which, you know, begins with San Simon and carries on with, with, you know, uh, sociological corporatists like Durkheim and Merz, you know, they, this is in a way of itself a kind of third way. And, 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 and viewed from that perspective, there's much more kinship with Catholic social teaching as a third way. And I, I don't mean a kind of Tony Blair Giddens sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, much more than might appear, you know, and something like a sense of the radical center, which is in no way some ghastly kind of triangulation. And it, it, it's sort of questioning the whole terms of reference, the whole terms of debates that in a way, you know, the French Revolution set up and, you know, to a lesser degree, the, 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 the American Revolution. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, you know, why, why have other countries so readily accepted that in a sense, because, often they've had their own evolutions uh, towards something more democratic that have been more organic. Yeah, no, and I, uh, part of it, I think, as you said, rightly, is the narratives that are pushed on the media. But it's my other question, though, is like, why is there no curiosity to understand what's happening outside of these narratives on the media? Because like, I look at very young people who, I mean, they're not watching traditional forms of news like, you know, BBC, CNN, Fox, whatever. Like they're going on social media, they're going on TikTok where it's very easy to just like, you know, the algorithm keeps picking things that uh, relate to what you're already watching. So it further confirms your narratives. But even, even for older people who watch traditional news sources, like I think the fact that there's no philosophical even spiritual curiosity to understand like okay so we associate one side with the good the other side with the evil is this kind of construct reasonable philosophically spiritually like if we're not reading philosophy theology cultural criticism if we're just watching these kind of commercial news narratives or we're just going on social media for the younger generation like we're, we just become these, uh, we, I, mean, I think we become robots. Like we're told a narrative, we just spew it out, we regurgitate it. There's no critical thought going on. There's no curiosity, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, this relates to this sort of transhuman danger that we're, yeah. we're reduced to a combination of the robot and the animal. Um, and, and we're dominated by uh, a digitalized 
medicalized discourse and and you know even all the choices were offered are another means of controlling us uh, and so on but you know i'm i i i take out from the fact that so many bright people now see this kind of thing you yeah. know and i think yeah. if, if you read say the pages of unheard um you see just how many uh people see that and how uh, a lot of the most intelligent journalists are seeing that uh, and, you know, writing much more insightful things than we're getting in, in the mainstream press. Yeah. So then I would want to close with a question just for, for young people who are disillusioned with everything going on, who do feel, again, this sense of atomization, existential kind of despair what do you recommend? Where can young people begin to find hope in the midst of everything happening today? You know, that, it, 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 it's, um, it's such important, an important question and you could so easily give a trivial answer because, you know, people are in all kinds of um, conditions and facing all kinds of struggle. Um, and and all kinds of 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 de despair um but i would say you know certainly look to nature you know look 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 to art um try and get back in touch with the rhythms of the day of day and night um the rhythms of of the seasons you know try to um not neglect the realm of the imagination um a, a sense of of the of the symbolic and then if you know if you if you come even remotely out of a religious tradition you know try and think about the way that may still echo within you you know what are the deeper things in your own family legacy or the legacy of your your neighborhood and maybe then um try to begin to to explore that you know and 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 above all help other people you know the, you know every time you help somebody else even in a small way it, it gives you um a little bit of joy that's more than simply pleasure um i think you know and and um any way you can uh, build up uh human solidarity really matters yeah no and i think as you're saying like I, we have to be careful with these uh, this idea of helping other people because for many it easily be it quickly becomes you know post something on the internet or vote for you know whatever policy but no try and do something you know, concrete in yes, real concrete. physical time completely go and talk to somebody in a cafe talk to the beggar in the street you know absolutely don't don't minimize your staying online you know try and try and have an iron routine about that you know you do it for i say i try and post this on myself you know yeah. and i don't keep you know i'm awful but but you know try and just do it once a day or yeah something like that. otherwise it's like a drug and yeah uh, it is it is no and it's it's, it's that awful. concrete communion which builds real solidarity which can confront social issues yeah. you know and that's that's where the I, I think the change begins in 
actual solidarity. Look at what look at what the people of Ukraine are doing. Look, you know, yeah. what, look at what human beings are capable of, and it, it's partly because they have real living traditions that mm -hmm. they're they're proud of. And that by by the Ukraine is the most religious part of the former USSR. Yeah. Um, something that people don't always realize, especially the West of Ukraine. Well, John, thank you for for coming on. Is there any uh, any plugs you have to uh, social media to any of your writings that you want to share before we go? Um, oh, gosh, I don't know. I mean, uh, the, the last book I co-wrote with Adrian Patz was the, the Politics of Virtue that uh, tries to address some of these things. And I've got an article coming out about Catholic social teaching and some of the issues I'm talking about in New Polity um, quite soon. And I'm trying to finish my very long book on the gifts sometime in the, in the summer. Okay, great. Well, John, thank you again for coming on. I appreciate it. It was really great to talk, Stephen. Thank you.